Hello, I'm Marcus. You're listening to Troubled Waters, Episode 2 of Musings of an Introverted Black Boy. Musings of an Introverted Black Boy is a weekly short-form podcast series dedicated to exploring themes of love, identity, politics, race, social justice, and the 21st century coming-of-age experience. New episodes will be released every Sunday, and each one will more or less focus on one of these topics. Now, I should be honest with you, there are no other co-hosts. There are no special guests lined up for the weeks to come. This is a very intimate podcast. It's just me and you. But through each week's episode, it is my hope that we together can begin to uncover and embrace the common truths that lie at the heart of our individual experiences. So, I hope you'll join in. Thank you so much for tuning into the second episode of this series. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if this is your second time tuning in, welcome back. Last episode, we talked about the liberating power of love and what it means to love people and ourselves in a way that liberates. For this episode, I actually wanted to switch gears a little bit. You see, this series is not simply dedicated to talking about the many ways in which we can be better and freer in our own lives. It is also concerned about the society and culture in which we live. And one story in particular that has recently grabbed my attention is actually the Flint water crisis. This past semester, I took a class called Science Writing in Contemporary Society, and for my final project, I was drawn to write about the Flint water crisis. Even as someone who's from Michigan, I was unaware of many of the key details of this event. But the more I researched, the more I realized that this is a story that everyone needs to know and understand. So I wanted to dedicate today's show to talking about it. Now, there is absolutely no way that I could ever tell the full story of Flint. It is so layered and so complex. But I hope that by the end of this episode, you have a pretty good understanding of how exactly this event happened. So I hope you'll stay tuned in. For many people, the only thought that comes to mind when they hear the words Flint, Michigan is, don't drink the water. You see, the Flint water crisis is a well-known story, or at least it seems to be. But for the majority of the country, this crisis is simply a series of events related to lead-filled drinking water. For those who know Flint well, however, it's a bigger, deeper, and much more tragic story than that. Flint has always been an industrial town. In the wake of its founding in 1819, it became a central player in Michigan's 19th century lumber industry. In 1908, William C. Durant, who was a local entrepreneur, decided to found an automotive company called General Motors. Durant, who was the head of Buick Motor Company at the time, merged the two companies together and built the headquarters in Flint, Michigan. Although Durant would eventually be pushed out of the company and GM's central operations re- relocate to Detroit in the mid-1920s, Flint continued to thrive as an automotive and industrial hub well into the 20th century. In terms of automobile and auto part productions, it was second only to the Motor City itself. At its peak in 1960, it was home to almost 200,000 residents, and even as late as 1980, it was dubbed the richest city for young people. The median income for young workers was over $50,000. As the United States auto industry faced competition from foreign automakers in the later half of the 20th century, General Motors in response began to reduce its workforce in Flint. 
as GM closed plants and downsized its operation from throughout the 1980s and 1990s, the city suffered economic devastation. Many of its blue-collar residents were left without work, and many left the city altogether. The city lost 18% of its resident population between the years 2000 and 2010, and the labor participation rate fell from 57.9% to 48.7% between the years 2005 and 2011. To put the decline in its starkest terms, in 1990, manufacturing jobs accounted for 30% of total payroll employment in Genesee County, where Flint is located, but by 2015, that number had dropped to 9%. Flint's decline not only affected its citizens, it also placed great strain on the local government. In 2012, the city faced a $30 million deficit, leading the then-governor of Michigan, John Engler, to declare a financial emergency. Engler appointed Ed Kurtz, former CEO of Baker College Systems, as emergency manager of the city. After cutting employee benefits, laying off city workers, and raising residents' water bills by 11%, Kurtz significantly reduced the deficit. He declared the financial emergency over in 2004, but less than seven years later, the city ended up in another financial crisis. And while Governor Rick Snyder, Michigan's current governor, took similar steps to Governor Engler, this state takeover had tragically different results. In 2011, Governor Snyder chose Michael Brown to serve as Flint's emergency manager. However, due to a voter referendum change in Michigan's emergency manager law, Brown was actually forced to resign shortly after that. Ed Kurtz, Flint's former manager, then returned and remained with the city until July 2013. After Kurtz left the role again, Brown came back and managed the city until Darnell Early, a former emergency manager in Saginaw, Michigan, was appointed in September 2013. During Early's tenure, city officials made the decision to temporarily switch the city's water source from the Detroit River to the Flint River. In an effort to save money, Flint officials had decided to build a pipeline directly connecting Flint to Lake Huron. Until this construction project was completed, however, the city needed an interim water source. And although the city council never officially authorized the use of the Flint River as this source, the switch was made on April 25, 2014. The Flint River, which runs 78 miles from Columbiaville to Saginaw, Michigan, has a complicated history of its own. As Flint became a hub of the lumber, paper, and chemical processing industry throughout the 19th century, its river became a dumping ground for the city's industrial and human waste. This problem was only made worse by the rise of General Motors throughout the early to mid-20th century. With its factories along the bank of the river, GM and its many automotive suppliers released untreated, often toxic, industrial byproducts into the river. And as the quality of the river's water declined and its fish population shrank, many became alarmed. In the 1940s, there's a lot of talk about pollution in the river, recalled Jeremy Dimmick, a curator at Flynn Sloan Museum, in a 2015 interview with The Verge. In the end, these calls for reform did not lead to major changes, but they did in part result in new regulations that required companies to process their waste before releasing it into the river. So what went wrong? Why was an entire city slowly poisoned over the course of several months if it didn't have to be? The answer is simple, and that's exactly the injustice of it all. This man-made disaster happened not because the Flint River was unsavable. City officials just neglected to save it. On April 25, 2014, the city issued a press release titled, City of Flint Officially Begins Using Flint River as Temporary Primary Water Source. 
In this release, City of Flint spokesman Jason Lorenz acknowledged that there was lingering uncertainty about the quality of the water, but he ultimately assured the press that numerous studies and tests had been conducted on the water by several different independent organizations. Michael Prisby, the district supervisor of the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality's Office of Drinking Water, was directly quoted as saying the following, The quality of water being put out meets all of our drinking water standards, and Flint water is safe to drink. What Prisby, the press release, and every other Flint City official involved in the Flint water switch didn't say at the time was that while the water had been tested, it had not been properly treated. When dealing with an aged water system like Flint's, treating the water to prevent corrosion is extremely important. If not treated properly, the water has the ability to corrode the old pipes, which causes toxic metals from the pipes, i.e. lead, to leach into the water. And the more corrosive the water is, the lower its pH and alkaline levels are, the more likely this phenomenon is to happen. To combat this issue, quality control officials usually do one of two things. They treat the water to control corrosion, which usually involves increasing some combination of the water's pH or alkalinity levels, or, alternatively, they use a corrosion control treatment that lines the inside of the old pipes and creates a protective barrier between the water and the pipes. This method is essentially like Pepto-Bismol, but for pipes, as Michigan Radio's Lindsay Smith once put it. In the case of Flint, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality chose neither of these methods. Instead, they chose to wait and see, arguing that more time was needed to determine the proper treatment method. In a Michigan radio interview, DEQ spokesman Brad Werfel said, It's just a matter of getting it right. You know, if I handed you a bag of chocolate chips and a sack of flour and said make chocolate chip cookies, we still need a recipe, right? And they need to get the results from that testing to understand how much of what to put in the water to address the water chemistry from the river, which is different from the water chemistry in Lake Huron. The only problem with this approach was that while they were waiting to get the recipe right, people were being poisoned. Almost immediately after the city switched its water source, residents issued complaints about the water's taste, color, and smell. However, initial reports coming out of the Michigan DEQ office continued to show that the water quality was in accordance with state standards. It was not until mid-August that the first signs of real trouble appeared. DEQ tests began to detect the presence of E. coli and total coliform bacteria in the water, which led officials to issue boil water advisories in certain parts of the city. While the city was able to mitigate this issue by increasing the amount of chlorine in the water, they created another issue in the process. On January 2, 2015, Flint was found to be in violation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Safe Drinking Water Act. The Michigan DEQ office found unsafe levels of total trihalomethanes, or TTHM, in the water. TTHM is a byproduct of chlorine's interactions with organic matter in water, and according to the EPA, increased exposure to TTHM can increase one's risk for cancer. In response to this news, then-Mayor Flint, Dane Welling, held a press conference on January 6th to assure city residents that Flint's water was safe to drink. My family and I drink and use it every day, Whaling confidently told reporters. This was the first of many instances in which city and state officials would assure residents of the water's quality, even in the face of contradictory evidence. On February 25, 2015, a city test revealed high levels of lead in the water of Leanne Walter's home. When Walters and her children developed rashes that wouldn't go away and started losing large clumps of their hair, Walters knew something was off. It wasn't until her tap water came out brown, however, that she began to believe the water might be responsible. 
Fed up with the city officials' insistence on the water's safety, Walters demanded that the city test her water. According to that test, the water in her home had a lead content of 104 parts per billion. To put that into perspective, the EPA's limit is 15 parts per billion. Just two days after the city test was done, the EPA asked the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality about its water treatment process in Flint. Stephen Bush, a MDEQ official, responded saying that Flint had an optimized corrosion control program, but it didn't. In late April of that same year, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality was forced to admit that the city did not have corrosion control treatment in place in Flint. Two months after the EPA was notified about city officials' failure to treat the water, an internal memo titled High Lead Levels in Flint, Michigan was sent to Thomas Poy, the chief of Michigan Department of Environmental Quality's Groundwater and Drinking Water Branch. Among other things, the memo detailed the EPA's concern about, and I quote, the absence of corrosion control treatment in the city of Flint for mitigating lead and copper levels in the drinking water. When Michigan Radio contacted the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality for a response to this memo, which had been picked up by the American Civil Liberties Union, department spokesperson Brad Werfel said, and I quote, let me start here. Anyone who is concerned about lead in the drinking water in Flint can relax. Werfel's comments were made on July 13, 2015. Leanne Walter's four-year-old son, Gavin, had been diagnosed with lead poisoning back in April. There was a real problem, but the city and state officials were too busy trying to gloss it over to solve it. In September 2015, a team from Virginia Tech University analyzed 252 water samples from homes across the city. Their tests led them to conclude, and I quote, Flint has a very serious lead and water problem. In an interview with Michigan Radio just days before the report's release on September 8th, Dr. Mark Edwards, one of the team's members, said that lead levels were some of the worst he had seen in more than 25 years of working in the field. MDEQ officials, however, were strikingly dismissive of this report. In response to the Virginia Tech team's findings, Werfel, the spokesperson, said in an email sent to a journalist, while the state appreciates academic participation in this discussion, offering broad, dire public health advice based on some quick testing could be seen as fanning political flames irresponsibly. Residents of Flint concerned about the health of their community don't need more of that. Despite city and state officials' attempts to downplay this growing crisis, more and more reports begin to show that Flint had a disastrous lead problem. Inspired by the work of Edwards and the Virginia Tech team, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Flint's Hurley Medical Center, decided to conduct her own study. She and her team found that the number of children with elevated blood lead levels had doubled since the city switched its water source. Alarmed by these results, Dr. Atisha and her team refused to wait until the results were published in a journal. They held a press conference on September 24th to discuss their findings directly with the public. No longer able to ignore or disregard this crisis, the city finally released a lead advisory to residents on September 25th, 2015, over six months after elevated lead levels were found in the water at Walter's home. In the months following this advisory, the Flint water crisis garnered national attention. The city switched back to the Detroit water supply on October 16th, but it was too late by then. The damage had already been done. On December 14th, newly elected Flint Mayor Karen Weaver declared a state of emergency. A month later, both Governor Snyder and President Obama did the same. Later that same month, the EPA issued an executive order stating that it had determined that the city of Flint's and the state of Michigan's responses to the drinking water crisis in Flint had been inadequate and that these failures were continuing to happen. 
In his opening statement before the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform on February 17, 2016, Governor Snyder, who has himself been under intense scrutiny for his role in the crisis, explicitly acknowledged this failure, admitting that it was, and I quote, a failure of government at all levels. As of today, 15 people have been criminally charged for their role in the Flint water crisis. These charges range from willful neglect of duty and tampering of evidence to conspiracy and involuntary manslaughter. While there is hope that the court of law will give the people of Flint some measure of justice, no number of convictions can undo the irreparable damage that these individuals and countless others who have yet to be charged have caused. The effects of lead poisoning are irreversible. For children, lead exposure can lead to lower IQs, attention deficit disorders, and poor academic achievement. Long after these city and state officials have cut their plea deals and served their time, the children of Flint will be forced to live with the consequences of their incompetence and willful neglect for the rest of their lives. In that sense, there is no justice. In the end, the Flint water crisis has no happy endings. It is a cautionary tale of what happens when government officials abuse their authority and betray the trust of an already weakened city. It is, by all accounts, an American tragedy. Communities have been depleted. Thousands of kids have been irreversibly harmed. The bond of trust between Flint citizens and their government has been further diminished. But the most tragic part about it all is that none of this had to happen. And yet it did. And if we are not careful, it could happen again in one form or another. As long as we continue to elect people who care more about protecting themselves and keeping their jobs than they do the health and well-being of their constituents, the Flint water crisis, or something far, far worse, could happen again. It may only be a matter of time. When I think about the Flint water crisis, I see it as an instance in which government officials were so concerned with the bottom line that they were willing to jeopardize and sacrifice the well-being of thousands of citizens. And if you think about it, that is a troubling motif that has shown up time and time again in American politics. Just look at the 2016 election. I can't tell you how many times I heard Trump supporters say during and after the election, I don't necessarily agree with everything Trump says or some of his policies, but I think he'll be good for the economy. He'll bring back the jobs. When I think about all of the racist, sexist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, vile things Trump espoused during the campaign, and then I hear people talk about their main concern being the economy and what Trump will do to quote unquote fix it, I can't help but see this as another instance in which the bottom line, money, is being given precedence over people. And that troubles me. What happened in Flint and what happened in 2016 are ultimately interconnected. They both, in some way, speak to America's struggle to answer a question that has proven to be much harder to answer than it ever should have been. Are people's lives, their well-being, their sense of belonging and value, worth more than money? We've been getting this question wrong for so long but it's my hope that maybe one day we'll get it right. This is Musings of an Introverted Black Boy, hosted by Marcus Granderson. If you're interested in getting updates on the podcast or learning more about my upcoming book, Timestamp Musings of an Introverted Black Boy, feel free to like my official Facebook page or follow me on Instagram at Marcus Granderson. And please remember that whatever you do in life, do it with love because love never fails. See you next time.